welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, and some other podcast hosting platforms that I'm sure this is available on as well. If you're watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. If this episode benefits you in any way, please give me a thumbs up. Don't forget to check out joshsummer.substack.com. That is the place to get the newsletter. Currently working on an article right now looking at Augustine, Lewis Ayers' commentary on Augustine, and how both of those men look at 1 Corinthians 15, 28, the surrounding verses concerning the placement of the Son, specifically in that text, which is often used by subordinationists to, you know, prove subordinationism, prove EFS, ESS, ERAS, and all of that. So be looking for that article. That's going to appear on joshsummer.org, but it will always also be mailed out probably to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter free and paid. A paid subscription to the newsletter is a good way to support this video content. Again, I thank you for tuning in. Going to talk about creeds today, creeds and confessions and orthodoxy, or creeds and confessions as they relate to orthodoxy. Creeds really represent a broadly formulated orthodoxy, what we might refer to as general Christian orthodoxy, and usually what we're thinking of when we speak of creeds in, in that kind of a context is the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, and so on. And then, you know, when we're looking at the creed or the confessions, if you're looking at Lutheran confessions, you're 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 talking about more specifically Lutheran orthodoxy or what Lutherans believe, what distinguishes Lutherans from, say, Baptists. And then if you're looking at the Second London Confession of Faith, 1689, or uh, 77, you're you're really looking at Baptist orthodoxy, a confession that is 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 not entirely uh, exclusive to Baptists. Obviously, there's much overlap, doctrinally speaking, between that confession and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Intentionally so, we plagiarized for the sake of of doctrinal Catholicity from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Confession, or the Declaration, and um, but you will find Baptist distinctives in the Second London uh, that run contrary to distinctives that you will find, uh, you know, to the the uh, to accrue to to something like Pado Baptism or even Presbyterianism in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So when we're talking about creeds, we're we're usually talking about you know that which uh, I guess doesn't define in a determinative or ultimately authoritative manner, uh, but that which uh, uh, recapitulates perhaps or, or systematizes or, or, or uh, construes the definition of what it means to be a Christian in terms of faith, what is to be believed. For example, Athanasius or, or whoever actually drafted the Athanasian Creed in the spirit of Athanasius Christology especially, uh, Trinitarian theology and so forth um, begins by saying, "This is what you need to. If you're if you're a Christian, this is what you must believe. This is definitional of what it means to be a Christian." So, a question that I've gotten is, "Well, 
why is it the case that if someone departs from well, let me back up. Why what is our metric that determines heresy? What heresy is? That's the first question. The second question is why should we believe that an accurate or sufficient metric would be these creeds? Um let's take the Nicene Creed for example. Why should we think that someone who departs from Nicene Orthodoxy is a heretic, someone who is not a true Christian, someone who is believing something something contra uh, the Christian faith, um, the essentials we might say of the Christian faith? Why should we why should we give the Nicene Creed that place of authority? Why should we give you know uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed? that place of authority. Usually it's the it's the Apostles' Creed that's that's you know really set forth as 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 a summary of the Christian of the Christian life. And then it's, you know, even in an Orthodox catechism by by um, Hercules Collins, it's uh it's looked at at length um, as a concise summary of, of of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed is. So yeah, the question is, uh, it's 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 one kind of born out of theological skepticism. You know, why should we, why should we believe? You know, I, in other words, it's starting from a, a a standpoint of doubt concerning that which has been historically accepted for the last two millennia, almost. And it's it's asking the question, well, why why should we believe this is the case? Maybe we're in a position at this point to be able to say. Well, no, we we we're actually going to reject that. We're in a we're in a position where we can either reject that, or we can augment it, um, and still be considered Christians. In other words, we're we're at a point in time, we're at a point in intellectual and theological development where we can actually put the Apostles' Creed, let's say, in the dock and say, well, maybe this isn't it. Um, maybe they actually had some things wrong in this creed, and despite the course of saints that that adopted that very same creed as a as an essential definition of what it meant to be broadly Christian, we're going to say that this that this creed is 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 not an act. It's not just that it's not a sufficient, but it's not an accurate definition of the Christian life, uh, of the Christian faith, rather. So um, that's that's really the question. Why should we put the the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or any other historical creed in a place like that and say, well, if you disagree with this creed, if you dis- disagree with this creedal construction, then you're not a Christian. Why should we do that? Um, let, let me just... The, the implications of that question... There, there are some worth worth. There are some implications worth considering before we even get into, you know, maybe making some corrections to some of the assumptions that are that are behind that question. Um, but but the implications uh, w- would be well. One of the one of the first and foremost implications would be that you automatically are assuming a position of authority yourself, right? You're, you're doing so, you're doing so um, supposedly in service to a conviction of sola scriptura, 
but but actually what what's happening is you're positioning yourself as an authority that is able to evaluate intellectually and judge intellectually the chorus of saints which have at least up until the 18th century would say maybe the, the the later parts of the 17th century agreed that the apostles creed you know and the nicene creed for that matter was an accurate summary of the christian faith right basically what it what it meant to be a christian um you know uh what it what it meant to believe in jesus christ who is christ in relation to the father and all of that and 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 you sitting in the in the 21st century in your study in the pew wherever you are you're saying that at this point you are in a place to be able to question essentially the peer review process of the church that God has providentially superintended for the last almost 2000 years that's one implication you have to believe that your opinion is in some way to some extent superior to the course of saints that lived back not only back then but but all of the saints who lived after those saints who actually framed those creeds all of the saints who lived after that point who affirmed those creeds as as basic orthodoxy so that's, so that's one implication you also another implication is that of theological skepticism you are you are actually engaging in a process or a method the 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 centerpiece of which is is doubt um so it's almost like you know when when Descartes you know uh in, in, embarked upon his great adventure of of doubt to see whether or not uh we could know um uh, anything at all whether whether or not uh you know he, he he his project was to doubt everything he could doubt and finally he gets to the bottom of the glass and the one thing he can't doubt is that he's thinking because he's doubting right he's doubting therefore he's thinking and then he concludes the great cogito cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am and that's the only thing he can know for sure and then he has to build from that from his thought he has to he has to build out a whole epistemology after that and you're taking essentially that method it seems um which is the method of the rationalist um and and you're and you're applying it to creeds and confessions and you're saying well let's 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 curl some doubt down upon you know the nicene creed the method behind the nicene creed the theology kind of serving as a as a backdrop to the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, etc. Okay, so those are two two implications of you questioning. That doesn't mean you're wrong, by the way. It just means that number one, you have to you have to take you have to take the position of thinking that you are superior to that chorus of saints in a sense or to some extent. You you can't you can't have an opinion that runs contra to accepted orthodoxy for 1800 years and then and then you know circle the wagons somehow and say i don't think that 
you know, I'm smarter than them. No, you have to, you have to think that intellectually you are more enlightened than they were. You know something that they don't or didn't know at very minimum. All right. And then the second implication is, is that, or, or, or revelation rather, is that you are, you are approaching the creeds and perhaps the confessions as well with a, with a doubtful methodology, a, a methodology of skepticism. It doesn't mean you're Descartes, doesn't mean you're Cartesian, it doesn't mean you're, uh, uh, you know, David Hume's um, disciple or constant disciple or any of that, but, but I do think you, you are engaging in a mindset that really didn't exist prior to those particular points in, in history, at least not in any sort of a widespread significant manner. Um, and so... Those are two implications. You, you have to at least consider that, all right? Doesn't again? It doesn't. Those those two implications do not. Those they themselves do not point out the fact that you are wrong for questioning the creeds. It doesn't. Those don't. That doesn't mean that at all. But it's something to think about. Is that the kind of posture that you want to assume? Are those the are those the kind of implications you want to go with? Do you want to go with a method, an approach? We might say that bears those kinds of implications. So that's a that's a question you have to deal with personally, if you are going to if you're going to approach the creeds in that way. The next thing that I would say is that creeds, and this is kind of correcting perhaps a presupposition that's that's being held by some who ask this question. Not everybody, but some. I don't want to make an assumption, a blanket assumption here, but but I think that that what is assumed is that people like me and and others who would say that the creeds are an accurate representation of, of basic Christian orthodoxy. I think the assumption is that we think that the creeds bear some inherent um, authority which determines orthodoxy, and that's just not the case. Let's kind of flip it around a little bit. Let, let's say for let's take let's take an example, a modern example that's easy to to relate to because it's something that you experience on a weekly basis, and that is the example of sitting in the pew and hearing your pastor preach. Um, when you're you trust your pastor, all right. Everybody knows that you should sit in the pew with your Bible, and then afterwards you should you should review the sermon, you should read the sermon, you should study the sermon, even for family worship. And you should be discerning, right? You should be a discerning Christian. And, and you should know your Bibles well enough that if you hear an error that your pastor says uh, or utters from the pulpit, you should be able to discern that error. But you don't automatically, right? You don't automatically uh, approach your pastor with doubt. Your pastor is your pastor because there's some trust that you that you have you have given him. Otherwise, you you wouldn't be at that church at all, or you wouldn't have voted to call that pastor, you know, or however your polity works. The congregation wouldn't have the pastor they have if there wasn't some measure of trust in that pastor's ability to be able to teach. That's one of the things that that is required of elders in the Scripture, that he be able to teach, right? So there's some trust there's some confidence that that man standing in the pulpit preaching to you has that ability, that biblical uh, requirement, that ability to teach. 
And so you don't automatically say, well, this guy's out of his mind. You know, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be trusted. And so I'm just going to evaluate everything that he says. Uh, you, you don't start with that posture of, of skepticism. Um, now, of course, if he says something that, that rings a bell, that runs contra to your understanding of a passage in Scripture, you're going to dig deeper, right? You're going to, you're going to pencil that through, and you're going to, you're going to hopefully wrestle with that, have conversations with your pastor, other members of the church, etc. But uh, you, you don't automatically go into the situation thinking, yeah, probably uh, this guy is wrong, right? You don't automatically go into a situation uh, like that with a skeptical posture. Um, you, you're basically trusting. You're not, you're not absolutely trusting as if your pastor is, is, is infallible, inspired by the Holy Spirit as the biblical authors. We're obviously not, you're not approaching it that way, but there's some measure of trust and, and there's some measure of acceptance of the words that come from that pulpit because of that trust. Otherwise you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be there. Um, now that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a contemporary example, a modern example of, of the dynamic, roughly the same dynamic that works uh, or that, is, that, that can be applied to, to the relationship between creeds and, and the church in general, Christians in general. Um, that there's a generally trusting attitude when approaching the creeds bec- because they have the capital, right? Um, these creeds were, were worked out after a, a lot of doctrinal debate. They're products of exegesis. They're not, they're not philosophical speculations. A lot of people think that they are. They're not. They're not the fruit of sp- philosophical speculation. They are, they are thoroughly exegetical in their conclusions. Um, and, and again, you have the chorus of saints, right, which you know, we would say have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make them perfect and sinless. But when you have thousands or even millions of Christians who throughout history have affirmed those creeds to be true and biblical, then that gives those creeds a certain amount of capital uh, that should warrant some trust, right? such that you don't automatically go and throw them in the garbage can. It would be arrogant and disrespectful to do that because you're, you're looking at a lineage of, of, of Christian brethren who have thought that to be an accurate representation of what the Christian faith is. So, the, the creeds are not, in and of themselves, some equal authority to, some equal authority to Scripture. They're, they're not, in and of themselves, some you know, a uh, standard that exists apart from Scripture in addition to Scripture. They are not determinations of what orthodoxy is in, say, that is in and of itself, in orthodoxy itself. That they, they, don't, they don't causally define or determine what orthodoxy is. God does that, and he does that through his word. Um... The question is whether or not they accurately represent orthodoxy. And if, okay, so since that's the question, if they accurately represent orthodoxy, then to disregard them or to disagree with them or to claim that they're inaccurate would be to depart from orthodoxy. 
right? So if they are if they are mirrors, if the creeds are mirrors reflecting proper orthodoxy, accurate orthodoxy, then to paint over that mirror, shatter that mirror, throw that mirror away is like throwing orthodoxy itself away. You're, you're throwing an accurate representation of orthodoxy away. For example, if the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says that God is one and three, right? And just that's, it doesn't say it in those words, but, but let's just say that it did. And you say, well, I doubt the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, its, its accuracy in terms of orthodoxy. So I'm just going to, I'm going to trash it. And I'm going to trash that statement along with it. Well, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith at that point is just reflecting something that is thoroughly biblical um, and, and accurate to orthodoxy, right? It's just reflecting orth- Christian orthodoxy. And so you might disregard the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. You might not subscribe to the whole of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. But if you throw away that sentence for some disdain of the confession itself— then you're actually throwing Christian orthodoxy away, all right? Uh, if, if, if you're engaging in this theological skepticism, which J.V. Fesco in, in The Need for Creeds Today, a, a, a rather recent book, I think, that, that, that he's written, it's short, it's brief, it's worth getting, um, is he argues, that, among other things, it's a result of the Enlightenment, this, this kind of skepticism of creeds and confessions. It's a result of an 18th century philosophy, um, among other things, of course. Uh, if you're going to engage in that kind of theological skepticism and, and, and you're, you're going to apply that skepticism to like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed, you'd better be very careful that you're able to make the case, actually make the case, and I doubt that you will be able to because you have 1,800 years at least, really 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy against you. Um, unless you're talking about certain fringe groups and, and certain groups post 17th and 18th centuries. Um, if you're, You better be sure that if you're going to throw those creeds away, if you're going to throw the exegesis behind the creeds away, the theology that rests behind those creeds, if you're going to throw all that away, you better be darn sure that you can make a positive case that indeed those creeds are inaccurate, that they do not reflect Christian orthodoxy, because if they do reflect Christian orthodoxy, then to reject them is to reject Christian orthodoxy itself. So when the Nicene Creed says Christ is very God, right? Very God of very God. Um, and, and, and you say, well, well, okay, Christ is very God of very God, but we need to understand that, we, that, that that doesn't mean that there isn't some level of subordination, some, some hierarchy within, within the Godhead, um, such that there is some quality about the Son that is lesser than the Father, um, you, you had better be sure that the exegesis, which would not permit that doctrinal conclusion of, of subordinationism, that exegesis, which is behind the Nicene Creed, is not reflective, and that the Nicene Creed itself is not reflective of Christian orthodoxy, and indeed that the Nicene Creed could be stretched to include subordinationism. You have to make that case, right? You can't just say, 
I don't, you know, the Nicene Creed isn't, isn't, uh, isn't an authority. No, it, it is an authority if it reflects Christian orthodoxy. In, in other words, if it's just reflecting the chief authority, which is God's word, then it's, it's carrying the same way to Scripture. If it's just repeating what Scripture already teaches, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's bearing the authority of Scripture, right? The creed in and of itself is not Scripture, but if it's, if it's, it's like your pastor, right? If your pastor repeats the words of Scripture, then your pastor is carrying, he's bearing the authority of God in as much as God speaks through Scripture and in as much as he accurately reflects what Scripture says. And the same is true with creeds. So if your pastor comes to you, you're, you you know and he, and he and he you know he points out you know you've been you've been you've been causing division within the body and you've been doing it for this you, you know and and that's wrong for this and this and this biblical reason um if he's right then he's 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 bringing the authority of god down on you and he's saying look you need to you need to you need to repent for these biblical reasons for these reasons that god himself has given in his word now your pastor is not God himself, but he's 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 bearing the message of God, right? He's a messenger, and he's bearing the message of God. He's bringing it to you, and and he is in that sense bearing the very authority of God himself. So if creeds are accurately reflecting, if creeds are accurately reflecting Christian orthodoxy, then to reject their substance, to reject their subject matter, is to reject Christian orthodoxy itself, right? The argument of the classic theist, classical theist, within the current conversation regarding ERAS and and uh, a denial of actus purus and and all of this, is that the exegesis behind the creeds and the creeds themselves accurately represent and uh, reflect uh, an accurate uh, dogmatic reflection. Uh, upon scripture and that ERAS violates that reflection and we're of course assuming it's an accurate reflection of of the dogma scripture has given us and so we're saying that this is a heretical position now let me let me let me qualify we're not saying that these people who carry this position who believe in this position I don't know their hearts, right? It could be an ignorance thing. If it's a recalcitrant thing and we're digging in and we know exactly what we're doing, well, then that's a different story. If it's, if it's ignorance, I think we can have a lot of grace here. Um, but, but at some point, you, you need to come out and say, you know, this is not, this is not an orthodox position. And we're saying it's not orthodox because it doesn't align with the creedal orthodoxy of the Christian church. And of course, we're assuming that the creedal statements reflect Christian orthodoxy definitionally, right? That they accurately reflect Christian orthodoxy. So we're not making the creeds in and of themselves the authority, but we are saying that the creeds accurately reflect orthodoxy, which is an authority, accurately reflect biblical orthodoxy, right doctrine, which is authoritative and binding of the conscience. We're saying that the creed reflects that accurately, and you're in violation of that accurate reflection of, of, of dogma, of Christian dogma. All right, so again, 
to bring it to bring it back home and how this works in a very practical sense. When you have three witnesses come against you within the context of church discipline, two or three witnesses come against you and they say, look, you're in sin and 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 here's why, according to scripture. They're carrying the weight of divine authority because they're acting, they're confronting, they're admonishing, they're rebuking, they're correcting on the basis of the scriptures themselves. And they're able to make their case, right? Um, and, 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 and that's the same thing we contend creeds are doing. Creeds are doing that. They're reflecting accurate orthodoxy, the, 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 source, of, the source of which is, is the Bible, is Christ, the Christian scriptures, right? Um, the other question, of course, that's not being asked is, what is the exegesis behind the creed? James White recently wrote that, you know, these are... These are overly philosophical speculations in the early church concerning the inner workings of, of the Godhead, specifically the, tri- the triunity of God. And that's just not true. These, these creedal statements and, 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 um, and, and what the, the, the fathers wrote, Eastern, Western, it doesn't matter. They're in agreement on, on the point of, of the doctrine of the Trinity. You can go to the, the, the Cappadocians. You can go from the Cappadocians uh, to, to Augustine, and they're in agreement here, and uh, they're, not, they're not engaging in, in overly philosophical speculation. When you read them, say, for example, Augustine in, in De Trinitate, in his, in his work on the Holy Trinity, you get the impression that there is tons and tons of exegesis resting behind his words in that work, and he's interacting with Scripture the whole time. So the question needs to be asked, what is their, what is their exegesis? And that, that question isn't being asked. That question is really generally not being asked. An interaction with the, with the exegetical method of the fathers is, 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 is almost non-existent um, in terms of what's going on in the EFS, ERAS, all of that. And they may quote from theologians here and there from those particular time periods, but there's no meaningful interaction with the theological method, the hermeneutical method at all. So um, anyway, take that for what it's worth. I I hope this is uh, helpful for you. If it is, please, again, subscribe to the channel. Don't forget to give me a thumbs up and, uh, and, and, and press that bell for continued notifications so that you get so that you get notifications whenever new videos come out on this channel. Guys, I, I really appreciate your shares. I appreciate uh, your tweets and all of that. I, 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 I'm really encouraged by that, and I, and I hope this work is, is bringing more uh, light rather than, than friction and heat. I don't want to stir division. Um, my desire is to see agreement on uh, these these points of, of what I perceive to be orthodoxy and and I'm convinced that you know you have you know millions of Christians over the last two millennia that that would stand behind that. So um, you know free to interact of course uh, but uh, and I hope that you do uh, but I, I, I really hope that these things are are considered thoroughly and 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 from the text of scripture of course but, but also uh, investigate, don't just write off the historical theology, right? Uh, investigate the method. You know, I, I've seen people say, well, these guys came to crazy conclusions. It's like, well, maybe you're missing something. Maybe you think it sounds crazy because you live post-enlightenment and you, you, we assume a basic materialist 
framework of the world. Uh, and we try to hold that in tandem with a lot of theological ideas that we have. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe it sounds wonky to you because you don't, you don't live pre-enlightenment. You don't live in the third, fourth century uh, or the Middle Ages before you have all the baggage of skepticism and, and the effects of war and, um, uh, you know, you live on the other side of, of you know, uh, uh, materialism and, and Darwinism and all of that. So, you know, don't just write these people off because they come to conclusions that sound weird to you. Investigate their method. Ask why. Why did they why did they hold to those things? Why did they conclude those things from the text? Anyway, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.